Prince Remembered from The Current. Hi, it's Andrea Swenson. As part of the making of Prince, the story of 1999, I got a chance to speak to Prince's longtime collaborator and keyboard player, Lisa Coleman. Lisa joined Prince's band in the early 1980s and would become a member of the revolution. This is our full conversation. Hey, this is Lisa from The Revolution. How are you today? (laughs) I'm doing well. How are you? (laughs) I'm all right. (laughs) So as you know, you know, there's this huge box set coming out, and that's what we're really making this special about. And the earliest tracks in the box set are from the fall of 1981, November 81, which was right after the kind of disastrous opening set for the Rolling Stones. Oh, yeah. So I've, t- I've talked to some of your bandmates about this experience, but I wonder, you know, what comes to your mind when you think about that experience? Oh, wow. That, that was just something I will never forget. And that whole experience was so unreal because first of all, when the opportunity came up, it was really exciting. We hadn't ever done anything like that before. We were still pretty much playing little clubs and theaters, driving around in a station wagon, you know. And then this opportunity came up because I guess Mick Jagger had seen us in New York or something like that. And he really thought Prince was something special. And he thought, what a great idea. Let's have him open for us at the (laughs) sports arena. And um, I think that was a little too far-fetched of an idea for most people. You know, we traveled out there, out to L.A. I'm actually in L.A. right now. So um, when we came out here, we were so excited and just feeling like this was going to be something new and something really big. But we were really well rehearsed and trained, you know, so we tried to just be cool, like, (laughs) no big deal, we can do this. And I just remember walking down those stairs. There's like a huge stairway down at the Coliseum going to the stage. And I just remember feeling really nervous, like something unknown was going to happen. But in our minds, I think we thought it was going to be something great. (laughs) Right. And when we started playing, it was just so weird. It was like, what is the crowd doing? They don't seem to be behaving the way most crowds act when we play. And they just started throwing stuff. (laughs) And I just remember like this bottle whizzing by my head and it landed between me and Bobby and we both got splashed with bourbon or something. And (laughs) Bobby was like, I'm going to use my symbols for shields. (laughs) And I was like, I'm laying out in the open, help. And then I just saw Prince go running by me (laughs) on my left hand side and he just ran all the way up the stairs. And we all looked at each other like, what do we do? You know, just finish the song and then we ran up the stairs too. Wow. It was so confusing. I still think about it and and think how did that many people you know, it really was like mob mentality because I think even if a couple of people were there thinking, yeah, Prince is kind of cool or who are these people? Let's listen. They were just turned immediately into like, boo, what are these strange freaks on stage? Get them out of here. It was insane. And then we all went back to our various hotels and whatnot, and 
we heard that Prince had flown all the way home. Like he went up the stairs into a car and like got his suitcase and got on a plane mm. and was out of there. And I think it was Des who ended up calling Prince and talking to him and, you know, just saying, come on, man, this isn't what we are. We're, we're fighters and this is what we're going to have to be up against all the time, you right. know. And it was a big lesson for us. And even though, you know, we had come out of the box outrageous and, you know, kind of punky, you know, it was like we thought we were up for some trouble. And little did we know, like, really what trouble was until mm. that day. So when that really happened, I, I think it also gave Prince a, a new kind of courage because there, there was a sea of people as far as the eye could see, literally in front of him, as if those are the people he was going to have to address, you know, to be the great artist that he wanted to be, you know, this was a battle that was going to have to be won, or at least faced, faced down, you know. So he came back for the second show, which almost seems outrageous because we were so hated. But we came back and did the second show. You know, we did as much as we could. We were still getting stuff thrown at us and lots of booze and middle fingers were flying, <laughs> you know. But we got through it and, you know, we did the best. We rocked it and we ran off that stage and like, that was horrible. Why do we do that? But, it, you know, it's become like this legend now. Right. And, um I don't know how many people have faced something like that, like literally, you know, being in a Colosseum. It was like Roman. (laughs) This is the Colosseum, isn't it? And there's tigers out there and they want to kill us. (laughs) Well, I love the visual picture you paint of, you know, Prince basically surveying the landscape and saying, I need to win over all of these people if I'm going to get them to, you know, love my music. Yeah. So do you feel like, you know, what he did next, which is, I mean, it's, it's so crazy to think about that happened and then controversy comes out just like a few weeks later but he's already starting to kind of think about what's going to be after controversy and and the songs that he wants to write next and do you think it's fair to say like he maybe had a new resolve or a new kind of mission after that I would think so yeah and I think it just solidified what he already knew you know I I think it was just the way it was presented kind of maybe put us off our game a little bit because he was always aware that he was going to be different and it was going to take something really special to get, you know, this little black guy, punky kind of, you know, what is he? He's not like just like a black crooner or a white punk rocker. He's kind of somewhere in between. And he he knew from the start that that was going to be a steep mountain to climb. I think that just after the Stones gig happened, it just solidified in him that he was going to have to really, you know, are you serious about this kid? You know, like, it was kind of like God saying, are you sure? (laughs) Here, I'll show you what it looks like. And he got to see it. And he was like, yeah, you know what, I am sure. And he really went for it. And We crossed a lot of those kinds of bridges of white and black and is it funky, is it funky enough? Um, Then when we were on tour with The Time, you would think that would be a great package, like people would love that, but it became sort of a a contest or, or 
you know, it's like the time was all of Prince's funkiness in a band. Right. You know, whereas like then when we became more of a mixed thing, we, we were, it's not that we were less funky, but we were just more experimenting with the rock and roll or even folk elements and just mixing it up a lot more. And we, we weren't just a funk band, nothing against funk bands. I mean, that's what we love. We love the funk, but the management and the business people started looking at it and saying, you know, we've got to split you guys up because the time is a funk band and you guys aren't. Mm. We're like, what? You know, that was kind of a hard lesson, but it made perfect sense. And Prince realized it. And it was hard for him, you know, to kind of like let the time go. Kind of, you know, it's like, okay, now they are an entity of their own and we can't be competing with them. We have to be a separate shop, you know, our own. We have the ice cream store and then we have the yogurt store. (laughs) It's kind of the same stuff, but people prefer one or the other. So, yeah, I, I think it really, that whole time was school. Yeah. Big school. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, you know, to think about basically Prince having to decide like how black he was going to be as a solo artist and then to think about 1999 as being the moment when he's finally embraced by, you know, white radio and MTV and everything. I mean, were these conversations that he was having with his band and, and that you would have with him as he's thinking about, you know, writing these new songs? Yes, but it wasn't that contrived. There was a certain amount of like natural young motivation where all all these experiences had an organic motivating factor inside of our bodies. You know what I mean? Like we wouldn't actually sit down at rehearsal and say, okay, now, Mark, don't play a bass line that's too funky. You know, (laughs) don't be too black. Right. Or, you know, like Lisa, make sure you sound a little more white. And, you know, we weren't really thinking like that. We we just kind of hunkered down and, and pulled out whatever was the best quality in each one of us. You know, and because we were a mixed band, you know, because we had a Jewish guy and, you know, I'm a Mexican English, you know, girl. And, you know, we just had a mixed up kind of band. And I think Prince was smart enough to know, like, what qualities he could pull out in each person, like a chef, you know, like, I need a little more Lisa Salt on this and and a little more of like Matt Fink synth craziness. Uh, and then combine that with like just the funkiest one note bass part from Brown Mark. And he just had an ability to make it like a new thing. Yeah. It was a new sound, but it had songs that were kind of familiar. You know, he his melodies and stuff, he was very smart about simple melodies and he did consciously try to do that make sing-songy melodies that people would feel like you know I've heard this before it's really easy to sing to and that's a really smart and I still to this day try to use that sensibility when I'm writing and that was a a quick way into people's hearts yeah you know if you could just get them to kind of la la you know like, I like that part, la, la, you know, it's as simple as that. It'll, it'll just 
infect them. So we were aware of it, but not fully contrived. You know, there was a a young, natural sense about it. And we were just excited. It's like, yeah, do that thing. Yeah, because we were young. You know, it's just funny. When you get older, you look back at the lessons you've learned and you can clearly see them. <laughs> right. But when you're younger and you're going through it, you don't see it clearly. You you were so in it. You're just reacting and you're feeling hurt or feeling pissed off or feeling motivated, all of it at once, you know. And then you don't realize until some years later, like, wow, that was because of that thing that happened. I learned this other thing and I tried it a different way. And, you know, so now we can look back and say, yeah, that's what happened. But while we were in it, it was a little a little messier and a little more exciting, I guess, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. As I was mentioning, you know, the vault tracks start in kind of the fall of 81 as the controversy tour is rolling out. And then there's a huge burst of activity in January of 82 when there was a break in the tour and he went to Sunset Sound. But I'm, I'm curious if you remember, you know, being on the controversy tour and um, hearing anything about what Prince was working on and kind of what he was thinking about for the next album. Only like every day, every second of every day. <laughs> Let me think. <laughs> well, I mean, I just say that because on tour, we had sound check every day and it wasn't like a sound check. You know, it was like just coincidental that the sound guys were getting a sound out of us. But we were rehearsing and writing and Prince was experimenting and learning learning the band, you know, kind of learning who we all were. And and that was still yet to change when Des left. So it was like we were still working out or we were discovering kind of who we were as a unit. Mm. So like every day at a sound check would be some kind of new thing, a new jam, a new idea. and Or he would look at me and say, what do you got? I was like, what? Uh, <laughs> Or uh, I, don't you want to just check, um, I want to be your lover right now? <laughs> and that was a great opportunity because, you know, then I just look at my keyboard and say, okay, I got this cool chord right here. What do you got? <laughs> you know, and we would challenge each other. And that was the way that he would get, like, the Lisa Spice to come out. He would challenge me. You know, he'd almost make you feel like a dork. You know, like, <laughs> don't just show up here to sound check. What'd you bring to the party? So, oh, okay, all right, all right, I can do that, you know, and then I have to reach down into my Lisa Spice cabinet and say, okay, I got this, you know, and then we'd all start playing along to my little and um, something would happen. And I think a lot of those jams started turning into, you know, what we were going to become. And he was just, I mean, the guy was... A really good-looking sponge, because he just took everything in, and he could you could see it come out later in different ways, you know, or he'd remember something that I played at a sound check, and then we were in the studio, he'd say, remember, you play those chords, like, at that day, you played those chords, remember, you know, <laughs> like, um, yeah, okay, yeah, and um, it was really fun, you know, yeah. it was scary, and perfect for a young person because it was like kind of being untethered like like no strings to anything and he was really 
an amazing spirit guide to have no strings to anything but hang around him and stuff was going to happen and it did you know and i i just remember as close as i was to my family and i loved my friends and my family and but i was like totally ready and willing to go wherever he wanted to go and for as long as that would take and and it was because i never met anybody that really followed through on everything they said like that mm. you know it i was so impressed and so happy to meet him <laughs> you know it's like yay somebody actually does what they say they're going to do <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious to know, you know, thinking about him in the studio in this period, were you primarily visiting him at Sunset Sound or would you come into his home studio as well? Oh, yeah. Wherever. Yeah. But we spent a lot of time at Sunset Sound. That's for sure. I remember being there a lot. When, when he was in L.A., and he had a studio at his house, he didn't usually work there that much. I think he liked being you know, in neutral territory more, so to speak, you know. And then he could also kind of leave us alone to try some things and he could go do whatever he's doing and then come back and either like go, ew, that's terrible, I'm, I'm leaving again. Or he'd go, wow, that's great. And then he'd hang around for a while. Like you knew he didn't like it if he just left again. If he came in and like heard what you were doing and then he was like, uh, I got to go to dinner. It's like... Oh, no, he doesn't like it. <laughs> it's like plan B. <laughs> so if he left you in the studio, would he set you up with like some tracks he'd already laid down to work with? Or what was the process? Yeah, yeah. He'd usually have like something, you know, maybe that he started in the middle of the night. You know, it'd be like a piano and a voice or it could be almost a whole track, you know, with drum machines and guitars and keyboards and and yeah, but he'd leave us alone and he might give us, you know, what he wanted, like sometimes a string arrangement or just background vocals, or he'd say, you know, he needed the whole thing, like piano, guitar, bass. So we would, we would just get to work on it. And it was always great when he came back and then, and he would stay and hang out because that would put him in a good mood. And then we would be relieved. <laughs> like, oh, good. Dad's not mad. <laughs> Dad. Because, <laughs> you know, there was a certain like, oh, God, you know, he's going to leave us alone and, and he's going to hate it. It was hard to tell sometimes. Yeah. So, you know, it's like he probably had ideas in his mind. And if if what we did closely matched it, he'd be happy. But if it was some other thing, he'd be like, what the hell? You heard that in there? <laughs> I'm sorry you don't like the oboe and bassoon parts. <laughs> <laughs> well, something that I, I find just so special about your role in this period is that, you know, when you look at the track listings on Prince's albums, like you're one of the first musicians to ever get like a credit on a Prince album that it feels like you were, you know, maybe one of the first to be kind of granted access to this space with him, to share space with him and to to record together and to work together in this way. I mean, can you talk a little bit about, you know, starting to contribute to Prince's records? Wow. Um, I didn't really realize that until you just said that. That's oh, really? Kinda, wow. <laughs> That's so weird. Is that really true? 
Well, I mean, judging from what he wrote on the credits, I mean, who knows? You know, it seems like maybe sometimes more people were actually contributing than were credited. But yeah, I think if you go to Dirty Mind and look, it's you and Dr. Fink really that get the first credits. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I know that when I moved out there and we started working, I mean, we worked really closely. I think we just really connected musically. Even the very first day that I met him, you know, there was some tension at first and we were both really shy people and we couldn't really look at each other or didn't have much to say. And, and you know, we got to his house and he was like, uh, you know, I think I'm going to send her home. This isn't so great. And then he heard me playing the piano downstairs. And then he came downstairs and picked up a guitar and we played together. And ever since that moment, I think we just, it was a love thing. It was a musical love affair. I mean, we just fit. I could play, you know, my weirdest stuff and it would just make him smile. You know, other musicians would just be like, oh man, you know, like get out of here. But he would just smile and I just loved playing with him because we loved each other and I could play a note that would put a smile on his face or he could play a riff that would just make me just see God, you know, and and I think he knew the level of my commitment Mm. and that I would be a person for him forever, you know, that when you're an artist like he was, when, when you have something to do and you realize, I can't do it alone. I need people. I need some people. And I knew that he needed that. And I was like, you got me, baby. You got me, you know. I loved him. And we just really connected musically. And he knew he could call on me, you know, when he needed, like, I just need, you know, something cute. Or I need something dark and mysterious, you know. And he knew that I could kind of do that because I had a cute voice And I had a dark and mysterious sensibility on the piano. So I guess it's just that we connected on that way. And he really did call me all the time to do everything. Everything he was working on, I was there. The Time Records, Vanity Six, everything. And we lived together and, you know, I'm going to get all sentimental now. (laughs) You lived together in L.A.? Um, No, in Minneapolis, actually. Oh, in his what became the Purple House. Oh, you lived there? Yeah, oh. on Kiowa Trail. Yeah, I lived in yeah. that house for a while. Oh, and well, speaking of getting sentimental, I just visited there yesterday. <laughs> I, wow. You know, the house is obviously no longer there, but there's new people that own the property now, and they've built a new house. And I asked if I could come basically just stand in their backyard because <laughs> I wanted to look out at the lake and see what it was like to be there. It was wow. the site of so so much of that period of his life. But, you know, I, I would love to hear just some of your memories of, can you describe that house and being there with him and, and living there? What was it like? Oh, yeah, it was great. It was like kids in a house and mom and dad weren't home. It was like... <laughs> Wow, it's a whole house with a kitchen and bedrooms and a studio downstairs. And I had a bedroom upstairs and Prince's master suite was downstairs with the laundry room and the studio. And um, he trusted me a lot because during that time, I also took a lot of photographs. We used to play around and do photo sessions. And this was when he first started wearing the trench coat 
I don't know. I just found a bunch of pictures recently um, from that time. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was like, wow, that's so crazy. So, yeah, I have those photographs. It's just like two. I mean, I guess we were in our 20s, like early 20s. But it's just like two kids kind of fooling around and like, here, hold this chain. That'll look really tough, you know. (laughs) And then like a a sign, like we put this sign on a piece of notebook paper that, what did it say? Death row or something on it. And we put it on the wall and like he stood in front of it. (laughs) And it just looks so cheap, like high school or something, death row. But that was before its time too, death row records. That's true. (laughs) So like it was a little house of creation, you know, and then he'd be like, Lisa, come punch me in. Like he'd be working on a song or something. So don't worry, I've engineered in the past. And he would be, like, playing the drums or something, like, punch me in. I've got to do the outro. And so I became his engineer, and I would punch him in or run the tape machine while he did a guitar part. Or sometimes he'd have a keyboard part that he couldn't quite play, and and then he'd call me in, Lisa, come down here. What? (laughs) Come play this part. (laughs) There were a couple times we did, like, these two-handed keyboard parts. I can't remember what song. It was on the time record, and there was, like, he did this string part, and then it was like, wait, I can't reach that note. So I played the high part, and he played the low part. You know, that would be really cute to think of the two of us standing there (laughs) alone in the middle of Minneapolis out in some wilderness by a lake playing four-handed arp omni parts. Well, it kind of reminds me of in the 1999 video, how you and Jill are both playing the keyboard together. Oh, right. (laughs) Exactly. That's it. That's it. I'm so fascinated by the kind of the contrast of like what kind of music was being made in such a fairly like remote and almost kind of boring location. It's, you know, it was in a cul-de-sac in a suburb and it was beautiful, but it's very quiet. And then you have all of these, you know, futuristic sounds exploding out of the studio and, you know, the actual explosions on on the album and and all of these, you know, cutting edge synthesizers. And I'm just curious if you have any insight into why was that important to him to have that kind of, I guess, remote location to work? I I think it was really because he was Prince Concentrate, and he had everything he needed already. And all he needed was the space to let it out. If he had too much input, like if he was in in New York, and it's hustle bustle, and it's, you know, take a cab to the studio, and there's five other studios going on with six other artists... It doesn't have the same feeling. It, it's not what he wanted to do. He wanted to emerge. And you could only do that in some boring place. <laughs> you know, it's a different kind of emergence. People do emerge in New York. And like, you know, you can be really an incredible artist and emerge in New York. And it gives you really rough edges, you know. And this is all very esoteric, I guess. But <laughs> for for Prince, I feel like that he was allowed to expand and emerge in Minnesota, it made him more specific. It gave him round edges. It gave him smooth edges that you could really define that's Prince. He's not a New York rapper. He's not an L.A. folky. He's not a Philadelphia funker. 
he's a Minneapolis what? Minneapolis? <laughs> you know? And it's not Bob Dylan? I think he just needed the space and kind of the quiet because there was a lot of noise inside of his head. Mm-hmm. And then he also got a great deal of love there. You know, I mean, he people love him there. He could go to the supermarket if he wanted to and people would be like, "Oh my god, it's Prince," but they wouldn't it wouldn't be weird, you know? Like if he went to the supermarket in LA, it would be weird. People would be like, "Well, it's Prince." You know, like the news cameras would show up. Right. So it was a peacefulness that he needed, you know. Yeah. Well, I would love to ask about some specific songs, and I'll be interested to hear what you remember. Yeah. I know it's, I, I imagine it's quite strange to have these songs have happened so long ago, and then all of a sudden here they come back. <laughs> yeah. And now they're coming out. Yeah. Well, there was one that I think, I don't know if you worked on it with him in this era, but I think you had revisited later. And I'm just, speaking of Minnesota, I'm just kind of fascinated by it. It's called Ya, yeah, You Know. <laughs> and... um <laughs> It's like a, almost like a diss track, like he's making fun of Minnesotans a little bit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or like maybe like a specific Minnesotan. But I'm wondering what comes to mind, you know, thinking about that song. <laughs> well, I remember it perfectly. And I I remember he when he played it for me and he was just laughing so hard. And I was, I couldn't believe he actually... You actually said that, dude. You said they spit when they talk. <laughs> I actually, I don't want to mention any names, but I know that it was inspired by a certain Minnesotan. <laughs> <gasps> I'm dying to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, another one that is interesting is this full-length jam of Delirious, and I believe you were playing on that one. And that one, I think the version that's in here was um, recorded at Sunset Sound. Oh, Wow. I barely remember that. Uh, now that I'm thinking about it, I remember, because, you know, it's pretty basic kind of boogie-woogie song. Right. And um, with things like that, Prince just, like, he could, like, get out a skateboard and, and start doing ollies all over the... Because it's so easy, and then he would, like, make the band, you know, okay, now play dead. Okay, t- roll <laughs> over. Okay. <laughs> you know, like... So it was one of those kind of songs where, and then he'd do like crazy, like horn punch gags. Like he was kind of like, we were like circus dogs and he would <laughs> make us do little jump through the hoop. Okay, go. So Delirious, that's what I think of when I think of that track. <laughs> Being worked like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> I have to ask, of course, about 1999. What do you remember about that song coming together? Um, that was really the most kind of methodical. Like, I remember I got to rehearsal in the morning, and I think he was actually at my keyboards and had the drum machine going, and he was, like, playing the... Bee, 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 bee. And he said, you know, he looked at me, come here. And, of course... That's my keyboard, so I'm coming right there. And so he showed me the chords, and he was like, play that. And then so like as each person arrived at rehearsal that day, the drum machine never stopped, you know, like it just kept going and going, and and everyone would add in their part, you know, like Brown Mark arrived at rehearsal, and and, and he was like, here, just play boom, boom, (laughs) boom, you know. 
And then I remember um, that night he had us come to his house, or he had me come. I don't remember who else was there except for Jill. And I played my keyboard parts, and then we did the vocal. And at first I sang that verse line by myself, that first line, but we added Jill because Jill just has, (laughs) well... Uh, I hate to say it, but she has a better voice than me. <laughs> oh. Well, she's a way better singer. She just had like that fiery, it just was better for like the opening line of a song because my voice was kind of, oh, I was dreaming when I was, I was just a little dreamier sounding. And she's more like, I was dreaming when I was, <laughs> you know, she's like tough. So I remember doing that. And then I remember doing like the party, the vocals at the end. And like Prince was looking at me like, come on, Lisa, go, go. <laughs> and I was like too, really shy. And I was like, ooh, woo, hoo, hoo, you know, kind of. And Jill was all, oh, come on, party, baby. <laughs> I was sort of humiliated, but I was going for it and <laughs> clapping my hands and party vocals. So I kind of, I remember being there and I just remember, um, you know, props to Jill Jones because she's, a really good singer, and she added a lot to the track. So, yeah, I kind of remember that day really clearly. Wow. It's kind of funny, yeah. Were you surprised that the song was going to open with a voice that wasn't Prince's? Yeah, I thought that was really strange, to be honest. But then the more I heard it, the more I liked it, and having, you know, kind of everybody sing a line. It was kind of a cool thing, and it was very Sly Stone, so that was kind of like, yeah, that's right, that's right, we can do it. We're just like the family stone. So, yeah, I, I kind of I got into the philosophy of it. That was cool. How about um, Little Red Corvette? I know you sang vocals on that as well. Yeah, that I don't have as as much of a memory. Where was that recorded? It was initially tracked at the... Kiowa Trail House, and then um, I think he brought it to Sunset Sound basically just to like do some finishing editing. So it, I think your vocals would have been at the Kiowa Trail House. I think I replaced that memory with some microwave instructions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, you know, thinking about the kind of sly vibe and everyone coming together for this big party on 1999, like. When you think about the album artwork and then kind of the look of the band being refined, really, and then mm-hmm. also like spawning all these other projects with Vanity Six and the time, it really gives the impression that Prince is forming like a super gang kind of yeah. of people that were just like going to come at you out of Minneapolis. <laughs> <laughs> Did it feel like that at the time that there was like kind of this momentum building and this like group of people kind of crystallizing? Um, yeah, it did. It really did. The momentum was incredible, and thankfully, the success kind of reciprocated with our, you know, we just kept getting better and better. We just did a little bit better with each thing we did. We we, we got more fans and more success or a little bit higher on the charts, or and then things just were growing, and Prince was getting more and more people into the gang, and including wardrobe people and makeup people people and artists that would come up with great 
art for like around the world in a day and stuff like that. He really started reaching out to other artists and utilizing talent wherever, you know, wherever he thought that's a spice that I need. And again, with Minnesota, just having the space and the time and the mental peacefulness to really bust out with something, to explode with all these people. I mean, you're right. It was like this, all of a sudden, the Purple Army. And, you know, and now there is the Purple Army. And it right. just grew and grew and the Purple People and all kinds of stuff. And so, yeah, it really, it did have that feeling for after a minute of struggling you know, a couple of years of like, oh, then all of a sudden it was like, hey, we're catching a wave here, you know, and, and it, it really worked. It was a perfect storm. There's no way to teach someone how to do it because so many things have to line up and they just they just did. What was your first indication that things were starting to click together, that you guys were starting to take it to the next level and, and become really known by a wider audience? There were different things that would happen and certain gigs that we'd have. Certainly when the Purple Rain tour, I mean, the first day of that Purple Rain tour was so different than any tour we had set out on. It was well, first of all, we were in better hotels. <laughs> it was like, look at this fancy hotel. Oh, my God, my room is great. And then we had bodyguards. That was the biggest weird thing. And then the other thing was that Prince started traveling separate from the band. Uh. Yeah. That, for me, honestly, was hard. It hurt. I, I was like, wait... Well, how come he's just in that limo by himself and taking a Learjet to the next thing and the band is on a bus and, you know, like, that was kind of weird. But we had to, you know, then kind of accept, like, okay, it really is about Prince. We're the band, but it's really about Prince and he's the guy. And, like, you know, I don't think we really needed to learn that. I think we knew that. Um, but it was a difficult growing pain for us, was to be separated from him like that. So even though things were like suddenly like grand and all this money and bodyguards carrying my bags and, you know, great hotel rooms, I still kind of felt a little sad and kind of lost. So it took a while for the band to get its legs again, you know, and the tour was so short so it was a really, it was a crazy time. And then during that tour, we won all these Grammys and American Music Awards, People's Choice Awards. So we were always flying back to L.A. and doing these awards shows together. And that was always a great feeling of togetherness because we would do that fully together, you know. And then we'd go back out on the road again and then it would be like, then we wouldn't see Prince until soundcheck or the gig itself. And, you know, it was kind of weird. But it was a short time because he was already on to uh, Around the World in a Day. And then that healed what I felt, whatever separation there was during that tour, it was completely healed for Around the World in a Day because we were just together all the time, you know. We were in at the warehouse on Fine Cloud Road. And it was a beautiful time right after that. So, yeah, it was Purple Rain was probably the weirdest 
I mean, what does weird mean? It was it was the most. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. It it was just very different for all of us because it was so high profile. I guess I kind of picture then the 1999 tour as like you're ratcheting up the roller coaster, but you haven't gotten quite to the top yet to fall down. Totally. Yeah. Perfect. I wonder if you have any other memories of the 1999 tour. You know, it was the build as triple threat and had um, Vanity Six and the time opening. And, you know, what, what comes to mind when you look back on that period? It was a circus. It was hilarious. It, it was just, I just, I just remember because, you know, we were kind of low rent still. So it would be like all of us at the Holiday Inn, you know, like, are they serving breakfast? And, you know, just like this, <laughs> the weirdest crew of people. And like, you know, the people who worked at these places would look at us. They must have thought we were a rock and roll band because there's no other description that could fit, you know. And Or we would go to truck stops in the middle of the country, you know, where there's nothing. And then out would walk, you know, I mean, just imagine the time, the revolution, Vanity Six, all walking into a truck stop in middle America, wanting a fried egg sandwich. And these truck drivers are going, what the hell is this? And they didn't know what to think. And, you know, we would get looks and people whispering. And, you know, it was just hilarious. But we, you know, we were kind of bratty. And we'd just be like, we own the world. Give me my fried egg sandwich. I'm going back on the bus. (laughs) It was just silly. It was a lot of fun. And and I'm so glad we all had that time together because, you know, it was. It was a triple threat. We were feeling so strong and you know, just young and cocky. And then, like I said before, they had to split us up because it was a bad business move, you know. So the kids had to, like, uh, go to your rooms, do your homework. (laughs) You know, we're like, oh, man, okay, fine. Well, we're going to kick your ass from far away. (laughs) (laughs) I really appreciate you being so generous with your time. I do have one more question for you, and then I'll I'll let you get on with your life. But um, I was wondering, you know, thinking about this era and this kind of moment in the beginning of 83, which was, you know, kind of the second leg of the 1999 tour, all of a sudden the singles are breaking through into, you know, the top 10 on the radio and and Prince is on MTV and you're on MTV. What was that like for you? Well, to be honest, you know, it made me angry because it was so hard to get on MTV. It was really stupid in the beginning because it was music television and then but it was only you know white snake really it was like five <laughs> videos over and over again of the same white hair bands and no matter what you did it you know we couldn't get on there and so when we finally did it wasn't like oh yay it was kind of like F- you sorry to you know <laughs> <laughs> But that's where my, like, activism just kicks in and, like, that was, you know, that was some bull****. And, yeah, we're on MTV. (laughs) Totally. So, yeah, it's kind of like that. It's not, it's like, thank you very not. Was there a similar attitude about radio? Because, you know, Prince was, at that time, it was still so segregated that 
you know, so much of his early work was only hitting on the R&B charts. You know, was there a bit of a uh, maybe twist of the knife, too, with being overlooked by Top 40 Radio until then? Absolutely. Yeah, there was the the whole idea of crossover came into play because of that, you know, and it was it was frustrating. It was maddening. It was just because a, a guy is black uh, why can't we play like a rock song, you know, it's, or because the, the bass part is wrong. Or even like when Doves Cry, because there was no bass on it, right. they wouldn't play it on R&B stations. Oh, like, interesting. Like, what? So stuff like that goes on, and it doesn't make any sense. People, you know, in, in positions of power make all kinds of assumptions about what the people want, and you know, what's going to work commercially. And it took a long time for us to really get on the radio and on enough of the radio for more people to hear Prince, you know, just simple. (laughs) It's just a guy named Prince and, you know, (laughs) writes some songs, has a band, it's kind of cool. You know, what's the big political wow about it? It's just, you know, funny enough, it was a big political wow. And, Radio had to change, and a lot of things happened, and and so we were kind of um, accidental activists, but not so accidental. That's exactly what we were doing, actually. It was like, just break down those walls and forget that, you know, white radio, black radio, it's so stupid, because people just like music, if, you know? If it's good, if they like it, they like it. So we should just have music stations <laughs> Not black music stations, (laughs) you know? Right, totally. That's like, I don't get it. Like, this is the black restaurant for people who like black food, you know? (laughs) Right. What the f***, you know? Uh, It's still a problem, and it'll always, I mean, maybe it won't always be, but there's a little bit of that no matter where you go all the time. So I'm I'm really, you know, I'm proud that, that we broke some rules and changed some things in our early days, you know. Yeah. Prince was a, he was the Prince of Peace, and that's what we worked for. So here's to Prince. That's so sweet. <laughs> well, Lisa, it's just such a joy to get to talk to you, and I so oh, appreciate you. you taking the time. And thank you again for talking to me. It was really fun. Oh, no problem. Thank you. You were wonderful. Thank you so much for listening. You can find the complete four-part series, Prince, the story of 1999, wherever you get your podcasts.